0: Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox.
1: I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vote. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren.
2: Y'all, can you believe that this is the final Living Centered?
3: podcast episode of the year. Wild. How is it the end of the year? How are we here? We've had so many amazing conversations this year. We have. Like 50 some. 52. 52. Yeah, plus this some is, bonus episodes. Plus some bonus episodes. We
2: had a limited series podcast yeah. that had its own Feed and then we. Such a good show. Yeah, shared here. So, the Treating Trauma podcast. If you haven't checked out that yet, you really should.
3: I really got to jump on as co host for the first time, which I I loved loved. getting to join in these conversations.
2: It was so fun to get to co host with you and Lindsay this year and just have some really incredible conversations. I kind of was looking back and um, reflecting on who we've talked to and some of the shifts we've made even since we've started. And I just love the depth of conversation we've gotten, the expertise that we have been able to tap into with some of our yeah. on site guides and clinicians and
3: therapists from all around the world. It's just been a really fun year. Yeah. I feel like we've went for it this year. You know, yeah. like the first year is amazing if you're a part of listening to those episodes, but I feel like we've now gotten in a groove and we've mm-hmm. really not held back. We yes. We're interviewing people and we've had so many brave guests who have also really not held back and they've been, we've been so privileged that they've shared a big piece of them this year.
2: hmm. I think we've gotten to dive into some really heavy and hard topics yeah. but doing it in a way that is so onside it's approachable and it feels like we can all
3: do that together. We're yeah. doing it in community, right? Yeah, and speaking of community, I feel like it's been so fun to watch the Living Centered Podcast community, Mm -hmm. kind of people engaging and sharing their feedback and sharing what episodes mean a lot to them. And that's been, I mean, so encouraging for us to keep doing this and to want to continue to give resources out there. Um, But it's cool. It's become this own little online community that I love. Yes, I do too. I'm so grateful for
2: each and every one of you. We just celebrated this year our 100th episode, which feels really big. And I, yeah, I'm just so excited to keep on doing it so you can hear more from us in the new year. But... As we wrap up 2022, I brought in Hannah. And it feels kind of like when we did our limited series, our, our bonus episodes for Mental Health Awareness Month. We just got to be like oh, yeah. Hannah and Ken. That was so fun. That was fun. Uh, but I brought you in to reflect on some of our favorite episodes, some of the best of in 2022. It was really hard to choose. So hard. How do so you So I've choose? got 12 episodes. And I told myself that's one a month, right? Yeah, that's Yeah. Good. <laughs> So we pulled in a lot of our favorites, and I'm excited to, to chat a little bit more about it. So welcome to the Living Center Podcast. First up is an episode with Caroline Bravo, who is one of our incredible on-site guides. She leads yeah. on-site intensives. I want to put Caroline in my pocket and keep her forever. Yes. <laughs> I just want to be best friends with her. Yeah,
3: yeah. This was uh, one of my favorite. It may have been the first episode. It may have been I the first co-hosted, one we called it together. It's definitely the first one I did in person, mm-hmm. and that is always special yes. and sacred. Um, but this was such a beautiful episode. For me personally, I think I just took away so much. Um, so much of this episode, we dove into the concept of pain, yes, which is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, pain and suffering. And for me, it was so eye-opening to learn from Caroline, who comes from a different background than I do. Yeah. And, and so much of my background kind of taught me to avoid pain a lot of my mm-hmm. life. And and Caroline's background really has taught her to embrace pain, learn, from suffering and also learned that we're going to it won't last forever yes I think that
2: was one of the biggest things that I took away even just some of the examples she shares even in the clip that we pulled out is just this concept that we can move through the
3: pain yeah yeah um and I think and not around it we don't have to avoid it actually we can't yes it will come for us if we don't learn to lean into it but that pain pain can be a teacher and Mm -hmm. we can move through it and then move beyond I love the way that she shared about her
2: Buddhist practice and how she brings that into not only her own life, she gave us a ton of beautiful stories of her own life, but then how that has influenced her practice and how she's used some of those principles in working with clients to help them wade through what they're walking through. Um, yeah. and I think it, this is an episode that all of us needed, especially yeah. when it came out, Yeah, um, walking through some pain and suffering. Yeah. And I think it's a reminder that it won't last forever. Whatever, yeah. if you're in a hard season today, it will not
4: last
3: forever. Yeah, it was such a gentle... Gentle invitation.
4: There's this parable in, in the teachings that says that there's two arrows to an emotional experience, two arrows that go into you. And the first one is like the inevitable uh, pain that mm-hmm. exists in this emotional experience, like grief. Yeah. Deep, some, and for some people, deep, deep grief. And then the second arrow, which you have a choice in, is the suffering. And the suffering is is how I see it play out as a therapist. Is So I feel the pain. And then this belief that the pain is going to be this way forever. Yeah. And so
5: Mm. uh,
4: learning how to be with the pain and managing and caring for the thought that comes up, which is so human and understandable that it's going to be this way forever Mm -hmm. and gently challenging that Mm. or even just being with it until it fades. Yeah. You can just be with the grief. I think that experience of it being this way forever also also fades. Mm.
3: I feel like that's a really good lesson for us to learn right now in this moment in time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everyone's grieving Mm -hmm. a lot
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, and to gain comfortability with it.
4: Yeah, I'll share the story. Actually, it was when I was doing an intensive out on site. I was with a a client that was – we preface the story by saying him and I had a lot of rapport. (laughs) I don't think (laughs) I would have done this with a client that I didn't have as much rapport with. But we were outside painting, um, and we were near the, the garden, the vegetable garden there. Yeah. And so he was just sitting and processing. He was in so much pain. And, um, but there was a flavor of this pain will not go away. It's here forever. Yeah. And just being with him in that and uh, walking over to the vegetable garden. And um, I don't know where this idea came from, but I grabbed a jalapeno and I sat in front of him. And I said, let's, in this moment, just practice being with pain. Cause mm-hmm. I know that you're with pain already, mm-hmm. but let's, let's, crank it up a bit and so we both took a bite we broke it in half and then we both took a bite of this jalapeno and the idea was just to be with the pain be with the physical pain in your mouth and watch it change because Mm. it did it being with the pain didn't necessarily make it go away but you got to watch the changing of the pain which i think this uh, this the Mm. parable of the two arrows is that is that it it changes mm-hmm. over time, and luckily with, with the jalapeno went away. <laughs> but yeah, watching the stories, it can create so much more suffering. With the story of it, it will always be this way. This mm-hmm. burning in my mouth will always be here.
2: So I loved Caroline's interview, and another one of my favorite interviews of the year was Shauna Nyquist. We love Shauna. If you've been listening very long, you know that she's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> it was a
3: pinch me moment to get to do this, honestly. Yeah, Yeah. Um, Shauna's been such an inspiration for for you and for me mm -hmm. for so long. And in a similar way, Shauna actually has spoke a lot to pain and suffering in my life. She has several books that have been really impactful, and she's kind of grown and gone through seasons, which has led her to this current season, which is of being a beginner. Yes.
2: So, uh, so much of this interview was grounded around her newest book that she has out that's I guess I haven't learned that yet. And just even that that statement. (laughs) Yeah, it's so permission giving and invitational to ask questions and lean into curiosity. And to just give yourself grace for not having it all figured out. Yeah, um, that
3: so. was such a good episode for me um, because I hate that feeling. Yes. I hate not knowing things. Uh, our Lindsay always makes fun of me and Mackenzie because mm-hmm. we always want clarity. We're yes. the clarity gals. We love to get clear about stuff. And and while that can be a really helpful thing, it also um, there's a lot to learn from not knowing things, mm-hmm. from being a beginner, from asking questions, from getting curious, from starting over. And that can feel really scary. Um, but I love that this episode. So, kind of showed you a, a pathway to being a beginner again.
6: Everybody has their handful of things that we're never going to really nail. We're always going to kind of manage the tension of it. And that's one for me.
3: Hmm.
2: That's really beautiful. I guess I haven't learned that yet is you, the title of your new book. And so as we're talking about learning and you were saying, that's one of the lessons for me that I keep learning. Can you talk a little bit about the beauty of learning? Because I think... In a culture that tells us we have to be experts, um, I have to know this, or you know, fool me once, shame on you; fool me twice, shame on me. Like there's just such an ownership to not be learning. So, what is the beauty and what is the magic of learning?
6: I think a lot of what pushed me or invited me to write this book is exactly what you're talking about, Mackenzie. That idea that that a good adult or a mature person knows everything has certainty yeah. has nailed everything down um knows the answers is is an expert in their field and and it's sort of the cement has dried and i think not only is that sort of a limiting way to live i think it's pretty dangerous yeah i think our world changes fast enough where if we're not learning all the time um we put ourselves in a really bad position in terms of being closed to new ideas or emerging thoughts or new feelings. And moving, you know, is like a very kind of comprehensive crash course in being a beginner in every way. Yeah, And the moving, so the moving process sort of put us into like the rookie position again. We moved from the suburbs of Chicago. So from the suburbs to the city, from the Midwest to the Northeast, from a place we had lived forever and ever and had a really deep sense of like roots and familiarity to a place where we knew like you know five people and so initially we were in this like beginner mode yeah in our move in the move part of our life but it became like this really contagious life-giving thing like wait a minute, what if in addition to being curious about this city, I was also like curious about our marriage and curious about my writing Mm. life and curious about being a good parent. And what if instead of approaching every situation as an expert who has answers, I were to approach every situation as a learner who can learn something from every conversation and every interaction, that has become a really life-giving, really freeing way to live.
1: That's amazing. What does that posture look like? Like when you're re-evaluating and trying to be in that posture of learning in everyday moments, how, how do you make sure you're in learning mode versus I've got this mode or expert mode?
6: I think one of one of the ways to do it is by asking a lot of questions. Everyone has something to teach us. Everyone has a body of experience. that, And most people really love to share the things they have or are learning. So, like, Mm -hmm. Lindsay, if you and I were out for coffee and we haven't seen each other for a while, I'd say, tell me about being a mother. And and instead of me saying, like, I have done this, let me tell you how it is to be a mother. I'd Mm -hmm. ask you about it because... I'm still mothering in different phases than you're in, but I really believe that what you're learning and experiencing right now has something to teach me as a mother or just as a human in the world. I think that sense of curiosity changes the way I interact with people because it's less about reporting some sort of body of wisdom that I have and more about like, Mackenzie, what is it that you have learned about this? Or how have you figured this out? It makes the world feel really interesting. And like there's something new around every corner as opposed to it feeling sort of demanding, like, what am I going to say to this? What's my answer to this? What's my policy on this? I have so few policies right now. I just have so many questions.
2: All right, I loved this episode with Kathleen. Our next clip is from an episode with Kathleen Murphy, who is our clinical director here at OnSite. And brilliant. And she's so brilliant. We recorded this interview, and literally it was two and a half hours Wow! that I cut down to about 50 minutes. One, we were just getting to know her. It was when she first started here, Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just fascinated and hung on every word she said. I wanted to know all about her. Lindsay and I loved getting to know her, and in this interview, she really dives into something that's really near and dear to her heart and what's her specialty coming in, and she has brought a greater understanding of trauma and a reframe for me especially, but even for the way that we approach trauma here at OnSite
3: yeah, um, with the polyvagal theory. So she yeah. dove deep into the polyvagal theory. Yeah, I feel like some of these words are like mental health buzzwords right yes. now, especially trauma. I mean, everyone's mm-hmm. kind of talking about it. Um, it's kind of trending. But even um, if you're in mental health world, mm-hmm. a lot of people are talking about polyvagal right now, and it's like, what the heck is that? Yes. Um, and I've read a lot on it. I've seen illustrations. And it still didn't super make sense to me until yeah. I heard Kathleen talk about it. And she does it in such a human, inviting way that helps you really understand what's actually going on in my brain and body mm-hmm. in, because of trauma. Yeah. And so it was such a tangible, thoughtful, uh, clarifying episode for me.
2: Yeah, and Kathleen just has a really great way of simplifying things. One of our articles in this year's onsite journal is like called Hashtag Trauma, just all the different ways about this trending topic, and we ask all of our clinicians to state kind of a misconception and then a reframe around it, um, and the misconception was trauma is what happened to me, and she reframes it as to say trauma is what's happening to you. Now, currently, in the moment. And so I think this interview does a great job of showing how trauma shows up and continues to show up until we can find the tools to address it.
3: Yeah, and she did it in such a tender way that uh, trauma can be such a scary or intimidating word or thing to think about. Or we just think, ah, not for me. Or we count ourselves out. That's not trauma. All the Mm -hmm. things we tell ourselves. And so she did it in such a way that really just made it personable. Grounding.
5: It was really grounding and normalizing. I loved it. So I love the polybagel theory because the word trauma has been used everywhere so much that Mm -hmm. after a while I begin to ask myself, okay, well, what does it actually mean? Yeah. And, you know, I have been in the fields a long time and as a recovering person, I've had to look at doing my own work and you know, when I first came into the field, trauma meant your story, like this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. But I started thinking to myself, mm. does telling your story really help? Yeah. In a meaningful and long-term way. Yeah. And it and I'm not saying I don't want to be dualistic, but I'm saying maybe it's only part of the deal. Mm, yeah. And I started thinking, well, when you're traumatized, what is traumatized? Mm. And so that brought me into a big, bigger question, like, uh, you have to bear with me, but it's like, well, what is it to be a human being? Totally. It's like, because if I see a horse out in the field and the horse is barking, for an example, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, there's something wrong with that horse. Not because the horse told me a story, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's because I know something about horse nature. Yeah. And that horse is whinny. They don't bark. Mm-hmm. That would already let me know something happened or something is going on. So mm-hmm. it's not the story of what happened that let me know. It's I know that this animal, that this being has moved away from their nature. Yeah.
1: Right? Oh, That's really good, yeah.
5: So I don't think we take time to go, well, is there a human nature? And I think that we get so caught up in being individuals, mm, right? Yeah. So, because I'm like, how do you know if something is functional or dysfunctional? We use the word dysfunctional. Oh, I come from a dysfunctional family. Well, what is function? Yes. Yeah. Like, for instance, if my car doesn't work, you know what the function is. Since I know mm. what the function is, yeah, it's to get me from point A to point B, right? Mm-hmm. Then I can recognize dysfunction. And I think it's kind of nebulous that we have about humans. And I'm just going to say our basic nature Mm -hmm. as human beings is that we're valuable. We're inherently valuable, Mm. that we can't earn it or lose it. So when you think about how much time is spent on trying to acquire worth and value, you can't acquire more of something that you already have. So it's a Mm. useless endeavor. We can tell our story... And we can get some relief, but it has to be followed up with practice, mm-hmm. yep. right? And to me, the polyvagal is one of those ways that fits in with every modality to go, yeah, this person has learned to live in a system of disconnection. Is like, and when you teach these tools, people get it right away.
3: I love this next episode because mm-hmm. it's another episode with one of our amazing on-site guides. Brendan McCarthy. Brendan McCarthy. And this was another episode where you and I sat down and before we knew it, three hours had gone by. Yes. Because we just found so much to talk about and we're getting to know him and mm-hmm. also just learning so much. There was so much applicable stuff in this episode. Um, and in this episode, we talked a lot about his story and his yeah. story from childhood um, and kind of what we can all take away from that. And he introduced us to this concept of the seven rights of a child. Yes. And this
2: concept is so fascinating for me. I remember hearing it first in my Living Centered program and then diving deeper into it. And it's just the seven things that we all deserved as children. And so things like the right to exist, uh, the right to separate. And it just was really profound when I learned it. And so getting to do a deep dive with him was really incredible. And my hesitation a lot of times in doing a lot of this work and going back into your story, especially around childhood, is a fear that I'm blaming.
7: Mm. I'm blaming mm-hmm. my
2: caretakers, who I know are doing the best they could. Totally. I'm blaming you know, situations and circumstances, when really he does it from such a graceful lens to say, we're not blaming or naming And we're claiming the ways that it could have been better. Um, And and then we're giving ourselves the invitation to come alongside
4: ourselves.
3: Yeah. And I think when we, instead of name and blame and name and claim, we can take back ownership even now. So many of us did not get all of our rights all the time Mm -hmm. as a kid. And now we get to give that to ourselves. We get to reparent ourselves and give those things the seven rights and so much more, whatever else we're needing. So even I found this episode so applicable because it wasn't just for people that have kids. I yes. think that was really helpful, even for you as a mom, saying, mm-hmm. like, how do I instill these rights into my child? But even for me as someone who doesn't have children, it was like, how am I doing this for myself? How am I fighting for that? How am I taking care of my inner child? And really um, giving her maybe what she didn't get. re reparenting.
2: Mm-hmm. This is another one of those interviews that if you really want to deep dive into it, you can check out our 2023 on-site journal. Because uh, I, after this interview, asked Brendan to dive into this a little bit more and write an article about it so you can learn
3: all about reparenting yourself. Yeah. And on siteworkshops.com backslash journal.
2: And I think a lot of the work that I have had to do in therapy is even getting to the point to say the fact that I was impacted mattered. Yeah. Because it there's a a dismissal that I that is ingrained in me of like it wasn't yeah. that bad. Yeah. I'll keep moving. Yeah. And what does it mean for my identity? What does it mean for my family system? What does it mean for who I am now, who I've become, if X, Y, or Z is true of, you know, this thing. And so can you speak a little bit to that process of like the naming, the not blaming, and being willing to do the work because we're not actually like awake if we're not doing that work, right? Yeah,
7: yeah. Well, it, it's even, for a lot of folks, I count myself lucky in that my childhood was so survival survival that it was way easier to name. Yeah. Right? But for a lot of folks, you <laughs> know what a, I mean? I'm like...
5: That's a really graceful way to view that. Yeah, like,
7: yeah. It's a nice little... A nice little yeah, reframe. Blame it on the, the day job, but the... <laughs> Because I could look at it and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a spade. Like I can yeah. call a spade a yeah. spade because this is like, yeah, you know, it's like the starship and the commune and like sure. the like. That's a pretty easy one to kind of go like, okay, I can look at yeah. that and be realistic and like that was not good. Right. Like that wasn't a great place for kids. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who had like it was okay. Like my parents were great. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there were some things that were going on, but it's a little more nuanced than that. Like. Well, yeah, my dad worked. I didn't, you know, he worked all the time, but like he provided for us. And like, so it was okay that I didn't get to know him. It was okay he didn't come to one soccer game because look what my dad did. So we have a tougher time naming Mm -hmm. that, like, yeah, but still, Mm -hmm. as a kid, you need to have your parents show up, right? So, and good, I think great therapists can like spot that right away Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that there's a self protective thing happening, that there's a resistance. Mm -hmm. And you look at the timeline. And everything is glowing and beaming and great. There's like not one thing that felt painful about their childhood. You know, you're like, huh. Anyway, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're let missing me, something. Let me ask about, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, and I will like really try to give them this space right. and empower them. Like, it's okay to name that, like, some of that. Maybe, maybe even as the seven year old little boy, he couldn't name it. I can't articulate that. But you and I, now, right. in mm-hmm. hindsight, right. as adults, we could look back and go, that maybe wasn't the home run. Mm-hmm. None of this is blame or shame. Mm. Yeah. None of it I, I will often say, like, yeah, it's not it's not blame and shame, but it's name and claim. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right? That's that we good. Yeah, that we get to like, but still like, who is going to get to mm-hmm. name that for that little boy but you? Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of times too, mm-hmm. we don't know what did we need.
4: Mm-hmm. What what
7: what is like the blueprint here of like what as kids we needed? Mm-hmm. To where it, we're going to sort of prevent a lot of that showing up as adults. And I think that's really where leaning into those seven rights is really helpful, mm. right? Oh my gosh. I think it's so, I just think it's so, talk about naming something. I think it's so beneficial and so effective. Yeah. You can, or all seven. I think <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. That, and I will tell clients, like, here's the great part about being in 2022 is like, we just know. Yeah. We know now. Like, yeah. we've got the evidence based. We've got the research. We can point to it physiologically, biologically. Like we can name. Like here's the stuff in our development,
4: Mm -hmm.
7: emotionally, psychologically, that we needed. Mm -hmm. That if this wasn't going on back here from zero to eighteen, right, when we're really in those like big developmental years, and 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 creating this person who we're going to be, if we don't have these seven things happening, and they, I don't know, the seven rights. I don't know. I think that was a a Bill Loki thing, Mm -hmm. who he actually created the actual seven rights. But it's I I love getting to do that with clients. So here's the seven things that you need and that we needed then to really help and set us up well to prevent a lot of this sort of like sideways Mm -hmm. stuff happening in our adult life.
3: All right, Hannah, the new year is almost here. Yes. And, you know, something I've heard for, a decade, two decades yeah. is new year, new you. Ugh. And that's exhausting, if we're yes. honest. And what if I like parts of myself and I want to keep it? <laughs> Yeah. Um, or I don't know, it just makes me feel like I'm striving, I'm mm-hmm. never good enough, there's always something else to be. And it kind of I mean, it kind of makes me a little sad. I think parts of it, I get the intention. It's yeah. beautiful the cycles and all of that. But here at OnSite, mm-hmm. um, we kind of go off the philosophy, people people are always searching for a different version of themselves. They're always looking for change outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. And like, well, if I had this or I did this Mm -hmm. or X, Y, Z, then I'd be happy. Then I'd have purpose. Then I'd have peace. Whatever it is for you, fill in the blank. But on site, we always say that uh, you already have what you need to have the life of meaning and purpose and connection. You just need to rediscover it. So we are saying new year, rediscover you. Yes, and we um, have a digital course that Mm -hmm. I love. It was our first big course that we created and kind of took so many of the principles and the framework of kind of our programs here at OnSite in person to... A computer screen Mm -hmm. and it features so many of our amazing clinicians and this course has been so personally impactful for me because it really required me to take a look at my current life reflect back on where I've been and what got me here and then dream for what I want to do and the person I want to be but first taking kind of an account of where I'm at and where I've been and that's been such an impactful framework for me.
2: I think this is a perfect companion to any new year and personally like you said, it has been impactful for me in helping me make sense of parts of my story yeah. and the parts of myself that maybe I forgot were there. Um, rediscover that who I was before the world told me who to be. Yeah. And dream into who do I want to live into next. Yeah. And so it's really powerful. It's so easy to use. Yeah. It's in our Beautiful digital platform. You will immediately be invited into our on-site community of like-minded individuals. And we just hope that it meets you exactly where you're at this year. Yeah. I think it's such a
3: beautiful roadmap for the start of the year. It's a six-week course. So Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of us want change, but it's really hard to do it unless that we have a plan. Mm -hmm. And so this is like super achievable plan. And there's a guide and there's an outline, but it's also like you can do it. It's accomplishable. It's not gonna take the whole hours year. of every day. It's not going to take you a whole year to get through it. But if you can set aside a couple hours a week or a half an hour a day mm-hmm. um, to go through this with the help of our kind of trained guides and the on-site community that you were just referencing, uh, it's such a good strategic plan to help you kind of get the jump start back into the life that you desire at the start of a year. Mm. So perfect. So if you are ready to rediscover you into this new year,
2: you can check it out at onsiteworkshops.com slash rediscover dash you, and you'll get 15% off when you use the code podcast, because you know I'm always taking care of you. Here's another episode that you and I got to do together. I know. Morgan Harper Nichols. We love her. She, like Shauna, is a return guest. Yeah. But I wasn't on either one of the first interviews, so that was fun to get to be yeah. on both. And Morgan... Is as delightful as you think she would be. Mm-hmm. That's my takeaway. More, what I took away. more even delightful, more, yeah, yeah. In this interview, she talked a lot about what kind of what was going on in her season of life. She had just started sharing with the world um, about her autism diagnosis and kind of how that had led the journey that she was on towards understanding this practice of peace. Um, and she was doing some deep dive in her own story, but then also some deep dive into her ancestral story Mm -hmm. and understanding what she could learn from the people who have gone before her and just this whole beautiful concept of how to practice peace. Yeah, Peace feels
3: so nebulous. Yeah, I think so often people think about peace as a mindset Mm -hmm. and how I just need to be more peaceful or I need to be more zen or whatever. And we think we can find peace when we go get a massage or go on a hike or get in nature, which is true. I think a lot of times we can find Mm -hmm. things in peaceful settings, but... What I loved about Morgan's conversation is that she really talked about it being a practice, that it's something we have to intentionally do um, and put like action and movement and commitment to.
8: I do love this idea of peace as a practice and why I chose to write about it is because I was like, I know in my life, I need more peace. I need to be reminded yeah. that peace is still possible amidst everything that's going on. But yet it seems so hard to obtain, to get, to, to, you know, acquire. So I'm like, there's gotta be another way of looking at this. And as I looked back at my own life and I looked back at even, even the legacy of people like my ancestors who came to America as slaves, not by choice and how they practice peace in Mm -hmm. their life because peace wasn't something that they could just be like okay yeah i'm just going to leave the plantation today and just right. have a peaceful life like it wasn't that easy for them
7: mm-hmm, so right.
8: in order for them to have any sense of peace or freedom to breathe it was something that we had to work toward over decades and i was like that is a practice i was like they may mm-hmm. not have used that exact you know language the way that i'm using it in the 21st century right but I'm like that is that that was a practice that was something that was like we're committed to Trying to figure something out. We're committed to, to fighting for our freedom, our freedom to breathe. Mm-hmm. And in, in many cases, it was literally just the, the freedom to exist as a free person. It wasn't mm-hmm. even like, I want f- freedom to, you know, build a mega mansion on a beachfront. Like right. it was just freedom to exist mm-hmm. as a human mm-hmm. being with Basic human decency. And when I look at that, that just gives me a lot of peace mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm, I'm able to see how I'm here today speaking to you all from what they practice. I'm mm-hmm. here today because of how they were committed to, to saying like, okay, we're going to work toward something better. And that was kind of the first place that I started to look But then I started to look in all these other different areas of my life and different moments throughout history, where it's like, amidst everything that's going on and how hopeless it often feels, we have to look back and see that individually and collectively in our lives, we have been practicing finding more peace and cultivating more peace in our lives. And now it's just a matter of continuing that practice, nurturing that practice.
2: I was really excited about this interview with Scott Erickson. He is just someone I've been following for a long time on Instagram. I think he's been poking up a lot, and just the journey he's been on over the last couple years has been really intriguing to me. And I loved getting to sit down with him and talk about his new book. And it's just all about the idea of a death of a dream, which feels kind of wild, but in this context, what the death of a dream opens up for us and how we can really lean into the reality of our life and show up more wholeheartedly to the life that we're living when our dreams die. And kind of, he he just kind of shares his own vulnerable story of how his life imploded and how he started from the bottom um, and shares some of his own journey with depression and suicide ideation. And it was a really powerful episode. And I felt so honored that he trusted us and kind of entered into the space with us.
9: Well, what's holding you back from that now? And because what I want to do is trust that the universe is kind of like, maybe now is the right time. But you're like, but I don't like who I am now. I, I have all these like mm. vulnerabilities and weaknesses and limitations. And it's like, yeah, and those are what's going to uniquely contribute to mm. how you're going to do it now. And that is kind of what a lot of the book is like the, it's the the tagline is like, what's the surprising life beyond the death of a dream? It's like the death of a dream. A dream is a version of your life, a version of yourself that doesn't have any weaknesses, any vulnerabilities. Like when you've imagined a dream scenario, a dream vacation, when you imagine a dream vacation, you don't imagine like all the stuff that goes wrong on a vacation. Right. Adventurous stories are complicated stories. Adventurous yeah. lives are complicated lives. You're, like a dream dies because there's a deeper desire in you, which there's okay. lots of writings about this. St. Ignatius is who I draw from, which St. Ignatius says, actually the the kind of deep voice of the divine in your life about your calling, vocation, who to be in the world is through your desires. And I think the dream dies in order to get at, to get out of the way, to get to the deeper desire, because the path of walking – the path of desire is one that you will have to walk with your vulnerabilities. And vulnerabilities aren't necessarily your weaknesses or limitations. It's your relationship to them. How do you feel about having them? How do you feel? Or is it something you're ashamed of? Is it something that you think you're dismissed from participation? And I actually think the deep spiritual journey is to realize your vulnerabilities are the which and way you be, you learn to connect to yourself, to others, and even to God.
10: That's good.
9: So you're being offered like something is dying to offer you something surprising, which you haven't imagined because you haven't spent time imagining what you would go into with vulnerabilities.
3: This was one of my favorite conversations we had all year because Mm -hmm. it was with one of our favorite people, Dr. Ed Barron. Yes. Dr. Ed, if you haven't listened to this episode, he's joined us a couple times Mm -hmm. on the Living Centered podcast. um, And he also is one of our facilitators for Emotionally Smart Leadership. Dr. Ed is a brilliant uh, consultant on leadership, organizational leadership and psychology. And we have just learned so much from him around psychological safety and the importance of diversity. And so that's what I love. We really dove into that in this episode. and, And I think you and I were Kind of vulnerable about like, hey, we feel a little fumbly sometimes yes. going into these conversations. But that's a good way to go in—that mm-hmm. we can go in curious and hungry and willing to get it wrong in—in in order to uh, try to learn how to create more safe and inclusive environments for everyone. Yeah, I think I loved
2: that we came into it both feeling a little fumbly and admitting that on the front end because I think a lot of this work is just being willing to show up and get it wrong and start again and. That's what I continue to learn. But I was um, grateful for Dr. Ed in the way that he kindly led us through the conversation um, and how he continues
3: to do that. I just... Every time he talks, I want to listen. Yeah. One Um, of my favorite takeaways from this episode was, I think, I've heard him say it several times now, but it was the first time I heard it, I think, was he said, diversity is not a problem to be solved. It's an asset to be leveraged. And how it is better for us as people, as individuals, as companies, as cultures, when we are leaning into diversity. It's not something we have to figure out, but it's something that we get to lean into and access and unleash the potential of a lot more that lies beneath it. I'm wondering how experience is interwoven into diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in culture. You're an expert on culture and workplace and all of that. Yeah. But how is there kind of a parallel between hopefully what, what we do at Onsite and putting people into the experience of work? It's not just talking about it. It's, it's you even said, experiencing other people's work yeah. um, allowed yeah. you to heal your own stuff and get a greater understanding of empathy and all of that. Um, so how does the experience of doing diversity, equity and inclusion work kind of thrust you into the process and help you look yeah. at it? Yeah. Yeah.
11: It's a great
3: question.
11: Yeah, a, yeah, a great question. So, so let's consider for a moment, let's lay down a principle that, that learning and development, real learning and development really require, let's call them two ingredients that, are very similar, and if you were to create a Venn, Venn diagram, they overlap quite a bit. They are experience and engagement. Mm. So you can have an experience and be sort of passive in that experience, sort of observing. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that you're having that experience and the, and the engagement is high, mm. th- that's kind of the seedbed for this learning development, or what we're calling transformation. Yeah. So whenever you can, you can pair a theory, idea, opportunity with the chance to, ex- to to have some experience yourself, participate in a non-passive way, so in an active way, an engaged mm-hmm. way, then you stand a chance, a better chance, to have some kind of transformational learning experience. That's good. Mm-hmm. Where that's important with diversity, and, and this is one of the things I try to dismantle when I'm working with folks early on is the idea that diversity is not a problem to be solved. It's a strategic advantage to be leveraged. Let's let's move let's move from sheer virtue to virtue okay. and value. Because mm-hmm. if it's if it's just virtue, if it's the right thing to do, then if you are a member of a of a dominant group, whether that's male or white or able-bodied or cisgendered, wh- wh- whichever group yeah. sort of sits in the place of power, if it's strictly virtue, then you are being virtuous by allowing someone else to engage or be involved. And that's, and that experience is still passive because you're not learning. Right. There's no exchange going on. Right. But if it's not a problem to be solved, but a strategic advantage to be leveraged, and if I'm somebody that's trying to do good in the world, goods, products, services, whatever it is, for-profit, nonprofit, doesn't matter. I think what I'm doing matters then I need to be informed, I need to be inclusive, I need to know what I don't know, I need to have people around me that are thinking differently, all those things that come with diversity. Mm -hmm. And so the experience might be, examine your your, your entertainment choices. If you're listening Mm -hmm. to podcasts already, maybe you want to tune into some podcasts that that offer some different perspectives or come from, di- from different voices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, examine your relational circle. Who's 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 truly in your circle? That's, I, I call them the people that eat dinner with you. In your home, by the way, not out at a restaurant. Not out where, and about. <laughs> not out and about, in, in your home. So examine your relational circles. Challenge your comfort zone. The comfort zone in my definition can only move in one direction, and that's smaller and smaller and smaller. Comfort mm-hmm. comfort zones don't grow; they get tighter and tighter and tighter by definition. So expand your your comfort, right? Get out of your comfort zone. In fact, right? Break it. So there's a number of things that you can do, but experiencing it means that now I am getting to know someone about someone about something. Now it's no more; it's no longer mysterious, and it's no longer the other. What I find interesting is um, whoever the other is in your life, whatever marginalized group that, that person may belong to, as soon as you meet someone from that marginalized group, they are no longer the other.
4: Mm-hmm. Re-
11: rehumanize. Mm-hmm. That's the value of experience and engagement.
2: This interview... I was on the edge of my seat, so excited that we got to interview her. Uh, Erin S. Lane is an author, and it's just so brilliant. But her new book, Someone Other Than a Mother, I think really spoke to me. Obviously, I'm in a Mm -hmm. season of like mothering, and the entire idea and premise— of this interview was switching our narrative from mother as a noun to mother as a verb, mm-hmm. and it honestly, it's something I've gone back to a lot of a lot since the interview, and some of the concept of mothering and community, yep. parenting and community. I think it just was really expansive in our understanding of the way that we can tap into mothering and in a lot of different roles in our lives, and it isn't just for people who are mothers, yeah, but just the ways that mothering shows up in a
3: lot of different relationships. So.
2: I love yeah, this Yeah, I love
3: this episode so much. Um, I think Erin's approach to this is so important, mm-hmm. especially for women. Uh, motherhood can often be such a big bucket of identity that we yeah. get put into and um it's a beautiful part of so many women's lives and for me as someone who doesn't have any children of my own um it was really encouraging to reclaim that word too. the mm-hmm. mother as a noun and see how I get to show up for my friends and their kids and be a part of this larger ecosystem of family and it's not just a parent child but what does it look like to mother um so I really loved that this kind of reclaimed a lot of that
1: Prior to having a kid, my identity certainly was more entwined with work, as you mentioned yes, and that then it's like you have a child and then it's like it gets bifurcated where it's like, oh i I work and I have a baby, you know I, but I how do we like right size and put our identity in who we are and yeah, yeah, what's the advice for like reconstructing that identity that I think so many people get it wrong?
12: Yeah, this is lifelong work.
8: <laughs> so <laughs> you I don't have an easy have answer
12: for us. Or... Three easy steps. Um, but I can tell you some things that were and are still important to me. Um, yeah. Part of this book is a story of rewriting my own story because it didn't make sense to me why I had become a parent. And it didn't make mm-hmm. sense to me why other people were so excited about it. And so... Part of the book is about how do we write more generous stories for ourselves and for other people. One of the ways I do that, and I'm learning to do that, is by really trying to move from mother as noun to mother as verb. Hmm. Because I do think there's something about noun that puts on a heavy cloak. (laughs) I am a mother. I am eternally a mother. I will never not be a mother. And there's something about mother the noun that feels sometimes way too all-encompassing for me. Even Mm. if it's in a list of other things that I am, there's something about the noun that feels much more closely tied to my identity than when I start referring to like mothering. And I am mothering. I'm in a season of mothering. Um, I can mother my own children. I can mother other people's children. I can mother myself. I can mother yeah. my own mother. And I find something so democratic about mm-hmm. mother as a verb that anyone can embody, even men, even people that don't identify on the gender binary, if, mm-hmm. if, the, if the verb fits great. Like, let's start naming some of the work that you are already doing to care for your people as mothering. That's good. And there's something about that that also lets me say, okay, I am putting mothering down, and now I am writing, and now I am reading, and now, right, and life's not that clear. Obviously, these things are intersecting from time to time, but I think there is something really powerful that I learned from other women writers who write about mothering as a verb That is one way I'm trying to reframe for myself. I am a person who is doing the work of mothering.
13: Mm,
12: Yeah. I think another thing that helps disentangle, again, is doing the work of mothering in community. Mm. (laughs) And just realizing, yeah, I am better off when there are other adults in my life who are essential to me and my children, right? So coming back to the idea that women are the essential parent is mm. not helpful to anyone. Actually, that kind of veneration is is too much and puts too much pressure, I think, on women, especially if that work of mothering doesn't come easily or doesn't feel like the thing they want to be giving 99% yeah. of their time to. So I think that's part of the reason why my partner and I chose to foster and then adopt. (laughs) Because we were like, if we become parents, and we weren't even thinking of it as becoming parents, we were thinking of it as co-parenting in community. We wanted to co-parent in community. We didn't actually want children of our own, um, in quotation marks, and quickly realized um, that all of the things that other people were worried about with fostering, oh, you're gonna have so many social workers in your home oh, you've got so many, like, appointments and, like, government paperwork. And I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to be co-parenting <laughs> with the government. Like, I would like to be subsidized in my work. <laughs> I would like uh, a bunch of therapists and legal experts. And, like, I would like these other adults to come around me and mm-hmm. and do the work with me. And honestly, when the adoption went through, a lot of that support – was no longer a regular part of our yeah. rhythms and I grieve that and I still think how can I regularly have people in my life that remind me that I'm not going to be the only essential adult in my child's life.
3: This episode was so fun because it, it dove into one of our favorite <laughs> topics that we often bring up on the podcast the Enneagram. I want someone out
2: there who's doing a case study to just keep track of the amount of times that we talk about the Enneagram (laughs) because it comes up so often. Even when I think it's not going to, somehow Lindsay will say, like, oh, I was a four. What if we did this through this lens or whatever? It's just a really interesting lens and paradigm that has helped a lot of us in our emotional wellness journeys. But I think, especially having kind of reiterated this in this uh, episode, that it has become a little bit of a parlor trick. Totally. In a way to— kind of box people in. Yeah. And so I love Evan's approach to the Enneagram and how she's like been studying it for over a decade and it's really deep. And the person that is her mentor has been doing it for decades. It's just, it brought a lot of depth to the Enneagram. Yeah. And it tied in really nicely with the therapeutic process that is so important to us here at
3: Onsite. Yeah, I love this because I think I can be flip use it flippantly of saying like, oh, what are you? You're a seven? Okay, cool, I'm an eight. And, and it's easy to just assume what we know out of those things. Mm-hmm. And so the invitation to go deeper was so great around the Enneagram but also so great and challenging for any areas of our life any identity that we uh, attach to things oh you have a family or, or you you have this belief system it's like how do we not just approach these labels and identifiers or buckets and assume we know about them it was such a good invitation both with the Enneagram and personality types um, and also so much more to just really kind of go beyond the label.
2: I felt like in the circles that I ran, in, especially in Nashville, mm-hmm. you couldn't turn right or left without people talking about the Enneagram and to hear you say, this person's been teaching on it for 40 years, like you've been studying it for a decade, where it has this very deep history, and then you are immediately saying, don't go on social media. And so <laughs> what is the heart behind that? What is what is behind that statement? Have you seen people... Um, quickly jump and find the wrong number? Have you seen people quickly jump and box themselves in or box other people in? Like, why the thoughtful, deep study? Great question. This is something that I
10: think about a lot. And I'm constantly kind of chewing on this idea that deeper work and Mm. wisdom traditions, like the Enneagram, which actually dates back to the fourth century. A lot of people don't know that. But these really old practices that involve meditation and mindfulness and introspection really kind of fly in the face of modern-day culture that's all about immediacy and convenience. Mm -hmm. So this is the point in which I think the Enneagram can be really interesting. And then when it gets to actually applying the work, Mm -hmm. people tend to lose interest. Yeah. Because it will open you right up and it will reframe tendencies and patterns and your reactivity in such a way that honestly is kind of difficult to look at. Yeah. And the point of that is so you can incorporate that self-awareness piece in and make some fundamental change in your own life. So it's very parallel in terms of therapy. A lot of people are resistant to going to therapy. Because they're afraid of what's going to come up. I yeah. know that that was certainly the case in my life. Yeah. yeah. Didn't want to open Pandora's box.
2: What's going to be behind the door? Right. When you do that? Yeah. Right. Definitely. So you can't
10: blame people. But, you know, I've learned that that's really the only way you can heal mm. and repair is by being willing to kind of take a step into the dark. So the Enneagram is really useful for navigating that step into the dark because it functions like a map, it helps us show show us kind of what we pay attention to and what we miss Mm. you know our blind spots and what happens when we feel reactive and want to defend ourselves and uh the cost associated with that move so I find that again it just dovetails beautifully with deeper therapeutic work Uh, but to your point you know in answer to your question I feel like our culture does not necessarily value the pause.
2: Yeah. It's okay. so necessary. This is another episode that you and I got to tag team on, Crispin Mayfield, and he talked yeah. all about attachment science. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. It's a topic that I think is a, another one of those things that's in the the zeitgeist right now but we don't always have an understanding of what that means and how it shows up and he he had a really interesting lens of how he approached Um, and helped people approach attachment styles around their relationship to not only the people in their lives, but also their higher power. Yeah. So it was a really interesting interview, and I love this definition that he gives that from the clip that we picked out about what attachment style is. It's just our bid for connection. It's the way that we found Mm -hmm. to get
3: connection, and everything makes sense in context. Yeah, that's what I take away from this episode, too. It's like, oh, that makes sense that you did that. It makes sense that you're still doing that. It makes sense that that's the way you're wired. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very permission-giving.
0: I really like what you said about validating that. Like, there's a reason I do mm. this. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things that came out of attachment theory is that people do things for a reason. People do these things that might look illogical, but it's because this is the way that you learn to get connection. Yeah. And the picture that I've used before is thinking about a plant that is put in a dark room And it grows sideways, right, towards this little crack in the window. Mm. And you wouldn't look at that plant and be like, oh, like that's a, that plant is broken. Yeah. Right. You would say, like, oh, that plant is just doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's just responding to its environment. If the light is just in this Mm -hmm. little crack in the curtain, of course it's going to grow sideways Mm -hmm. towards the window rather than straight up towards the sun. Yeah. And I think Mm -hmm. that's true with people. The, the founder of attachment theory, John Bowlby, said, if you look at a kid that's quiet and getting their needs met, that's exactly what they are designed to do. If you look at a kid that is not getting the connection or attention they need and they're throwing a fit, that is exactly what they're designed to do, hmm. <laughs> right? Like we are right. just designed to try to get that connection and we'll do it in the ways that work.
2: I think a lot of what Crispin talks about is just embracing our story, um, giving ourselves grace, and and diving into that work to say, okay, why am I functioning the way that I am? And I love that it kind of leads into Brent's conversation around deconstruction and reengaging with the parts of ourselves that we might have lost. Because maybe in a bid for connection or other things or trauma or pain, I think we do lose parts of ourselves. And then Brent talked a lot about like deconstructing the narratives that we've always had, yeah. Um, but not just staying there. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times yeah. we live in a world where people kind of dismantle a lot of what they grew up with and what they believed and some of the things that they carry in from their earliest memories and family of origin. But then they just sit there and get stuck and stagnant and don't rebuild. And so yeah. I loved the other side of Brent's encouragement to
3: reconstruct
2: when we're deconstructing.
3: Yeah, I love that. I feel like deconstruction is another one of those buzzwords yeah. that people love to throw around, myself included. And and there's a season for that, for mm-hmm. sure. But I once heard this metaphor about like kind of viewing it as a you go up into your attic and you, mm-hmm. then you decide, what are you going to keep? What are you going to recycle? And what are you going to reuse? And so
4: yeah.
3: I thought that this episode kind of parallels that, um, that like, yeah, we do get to keep some things. We do get to repurpose some other things and we get to recycle other ones. We just get to say, this is no longer serving me but we have to go through the process if we just stay deconstructed we're just like open heart surgery you know we have all these open pieces and so we don't have to be sewn back up in the same way but we get to decide how we heal and how we move forward Mm, so good
13: but for most of us i feel like we have this homing beacon and i call that the heart yeah and so truly for me that was the big revelation was i i left my heart Or I tried to use it for my own purposes. Mm -hmm. You know, the heart being the the space of enthusiasm and wonder and and desire and longing and fear and despair and all that kind of stuff. Like these are heavy things uh, that we carry. And so, usually, by the time we start feeling the weight of that, we try to get out of there. Yeah. Um, And if we don't have a good thing to grab onto, then we end up just kind of tumbling down the mountain. And so that happened to me with what I would say to people in that position, because yeah. I, first thing I would say is I'm glad that you're thinking critically and I'm glad yeah. that you're deconstructing. That is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't stay in deconstruction, which would just be pure chaos. Right. We have to put it, we have to piece it back together. That's good. And so moving from, and this, I didn't come up with this. I'm borrowing, borrowing this from from somewhere I read it, but we move from order to disorder, to reorder, and that is the path. And so our lives start with a particular amount of order. Here's how here's, we're presented with the world and with some values right. and with some uh, worldview and paradigms. Uh, and then we usually will begin to deconstruct those in adolescence, and oftentimes tragically much sooner if if we have trauma in the home or mm-hmm. abuses yeah. going on and stuff like that. Uh, and so what I would offer is um, one, you. De- deconstructions good I'm glad you're doing that uh, and there's some there's some helpful tips with deconstruction
2: this last clip I... Couldn't finish out this episode without bringing in Tuiary, yeah. Butler, who we I love. I love that
3: you ended it with this because I think this was the first episode we had of this year, mm-hmm. right? It was yep. The first episode of 2022, and now it's the last voice yes. you'll hear.
2: <laughs> Tuary is the most incredible human. We met her uh, doing our, uh, as she shares in the interview, our emotionally smart leadership pilot program here at Onsite, and what I loved about that in particular is that. Well, normally, on site, you don't get to talk about what you do. We kind of loosely held that here with that Emotionally Smart program. And we encourage people to lead out with who they are, not what they are and what they mm-hmm. do. And Tuari was already embodying that so well. And as yeah. you'll see in this clip, she's someone who has been in the room with a lot of powerful people. She served on the staff for Congressman John Lewis for, like, decades. She was his mm-hmm. longest serving. 22 years, I think. Team yeah. And so she... Has been in the mix of it, but she's so humble and she's so kind and she just approached it of like everyone is human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a great reminder and I wanted to leave us on that to remember that you are a human being. Yeah. Not a human doing.
3: Yeah, I think especially as we start a new year, it's easy to get caught up in the hustle about yeah. goals and resolutions and all these things we want to accomplish and do. And and while a lot of that, like vision casting, is really beautiful, we can lose ourselves in the process yeah. and forget how to just be human mm-hmm. instead of uh, trying to obtain all these lofty things. And so, I think it's such a beautiful way to start the year. So, yeah. and
2: maybe it'll be a little bit of encouragement to add connection to your intention list
14: been around a lot of celebrities and, and high officials and people who we all look up to and, and follow on Instagram and Twitter and, you know, develop this narrative of how their life must be yep. and what kind mm. of people they must be. And I always go into meeting and interacting with a person just because they're a person. So a lot of times in my 22 years, I never introduced myself as, hey, I'm Tuere, Congressman John Lewis is district director. I would wait and say, hey, I'm Tuere, how are you? That, That simple just interaction. And I think that it's important for us to realize that we are all humans, like you said, Lindsay, we're all humans first. So why don't we just get to know each other as people? And that's one of the things I loved about going through you all's program. When we got there, it's just, oh, this is this is Lindsay, this is Mackenzie, this is Tuiary. There's no other information, and I think we need to get back to just saying hello, how are you? You know, what do you like to do? Not what do you do? Yeah. Because what you do doesn't define what kind of person you are. And I think that we put this, these definitions or these expectations on people because of the the positions or careers that they have and thinking that then they're above or better than or better off. And that's not the case.
2: All right, friends. Well, that is a wrap on 2022 for the Living Centered Podcast. What a year. What a year. We are so grateful for you. And I hope uh, that you will join us again in January.
0: Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.